Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Virginia Law for law enforcement officers, and we're talking about law, constitutional law, statutory law, cases from the courts of appeals, from the Fourth Circuit. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in Virginia to do your job right, to do it well, to serve your communities? And I'm so excited about all the um, responses we've gotten. Thank you so much to everybody out there who's listening. You know, if you're listening to this podcast, if you've stuck with this podcast by now, um, you know, you've demonstrated to me, and it, it makes me so encouraged to keep doing these, that you really do care about doing it right, about uh, knowing the law, understanding it, uh, following it so you can better serve your communities. And, um, and so thank you so much for the time that you share with me. I really appreciate it. Today we'll be talking about the new General Assembly's uh, proposals for, as they call it, criminal justice reform or police reform. As you know, they've called a special session. This is not the normal session that the General Assembly meets. That's usually January, February, March. This is a special session. And because it's a special session, it's not operating according to the normal rules. It's not operating according to normal procedure. It's not happening at a normal time. And of course, it's happening during the middle of the COVID-19 uh, coronavirus epidemic. So they're not meeting in person. They're meeting online. So the whole process is very, if you're, even if you know how the General Assembly works, uh, and I know something about how it works, um, the process is a little confusing and strange. So what I wanted to do today was to talk a little bit about uh, really three bills or three proposals that are making their way through the General Assembly uh, and and sort of break them down, talk about the parts of them, what's actually going on, and uh, what the implications are for you as law enforcement. That's what we're going to do today. So we're going to talk about a bill on um, reducing the number of primary offenses, so cutting back on um, you know, window tint and uh, license plate tag lights, and especially marijuana, to reducing marijuana basically to a secondary offense and saying you cannot search based on the smell of matter, odor of marijuana. So I'm going to talk about that bill. I'm going to talk about the uh, bill about assault and law enforcement officer. And then I'm going to talk about the police liability bill, the bill that is proposing to, um, it's sort of advertising as end qualified immunity, but it does a lot more than that. And so I'm going to talk about that bill, too. And so to give you a chance to understand what the language is, none of these bills have passed both houses of the General Assembly yet. Um, some of them might, some of them might not. We'll see as we go through. But um, but they're all potentially going to be able to come law. And they're also, even if they don't make it through this General Assembly, they're certainly probably going to come back in January uh, when the General Assembly meets for its regular session uh, in um, 2021. So... Where are we right now with the General Assembly? Well, the House has met, the Senate has met, their committees have met. The House hasn't really passed a whole lot of anything. They've the, the committees have passed a lot of stuff, but most of the House's resolutions and stuff haven't, you know, substantive stuff hasn't really passed through the whole House yet. But the Senate, Senate has passed a good number of bills, and I'm going to talk about some of those bills today. Uh, the House will obviously meet going into the future, and they will, you know, obviously start passing things. And if something passes through the committees, like, for example, the House Courts of Justice Committee, um, that's, you know, makes it certainly much more likely that the whole entire House will pass that bill. Um, it would take, you know, a lot of effort on the you know, parts of people who oppose bills to, to stop something from passing if it's already passed through the committee. And historically, things pass through the committee and pass the whole House. But then they got to go to the other House. So if it's passed the House, it go to the Senate. If it's passed the Senate, it's got to go to the House. And then the governor has to sign it. And the governor could, you know, do a line item veto and send it back, or he could veto the whole bill. Let's talk about what's passed the Senate. The first bill I want to talk about is Senate Bill 5029. 
And this is a, uh, a bill proposed by Senator Lucas. And this bill would essentially turn a number of offenses into secondary offenses. In other words, offenses that you couldn't stop a vehicle for uh, on their own. You'd have to have some other violation, and then you could write a citation for it. And the offenses that it turns from primary to secondary offenses, one of them is uh, the noise coming from a exhaust. So exhaust noise from a motorcycle, a moped, a scooter, that kind of stuff, um, or noise that comes from a... A vehicle. Uh, in addition to that, it would reduce uh, the uh, window tint violation to a secondary violation. So you couldn't stop a vehicle for a window tint violation, uh, at least that, that particular code section. I mean, obviously, if all the windows were blacked out, the person couldn't see, you might argue that's reckless driving. But just for a window tint violation, that's a secondary offense. Um, in addition to that, taillights and uh, also, uh, in the taillight section, um, just the license plate, plate tag section of it is being reduced to a secondary offense. So obviously, if a taillight is out or a headlight is out, that's still a reason to stop a vehicle. But the license plate tag section, uh, that is reduced to a secondary offense. Um, hanging, hanging objects from the rearview mirror, uh, the sort of obstructed view Kate, uh, argument, that is also... Again, something that is reduced to a secondary offense. But of course, again, if the person has like their whole sunshade up on, you know, that's an, that, that might also be a reckless driving issue. So if the person can't see while they're driving, well, that's another issue. But if you're stopping for that particular violation, obstructed view, that's a secondary offense. And most significantly, uh, marijuana is reduced to a secondary offense. So the proposal that's passed the Senate now and goes to the House will state that no citation for a violation of this section shall be issued unless the officer issuing such citation has cause to stop or arrest the person for, some, for the violation of some other provision of this code. So that's a little bit of a complicated sentence, so I want to unpack it because it doesn't exactly say uh, what, the, what the other code sections say, and it doesn't exactly say you can't stop somebody for possession of marijuana. It says that no citation shall be issued unless one of two things happens. You have cause to stop the person for another violation of the code, or you have cause to arrest the person for another violation of the code. So, you know, imagine, for example, somebody is holding on to a marijuana cigarette. They, you can see that it's marijuana. You can smell that it's marijuana. It's obvious that it's marijuana. So you stop, you inquire, can you write that person a citation for possession of marijuana? Well, no, you can't because you don't have cause to arrest the person for anything else other than the mere possession of marijuana. So, uh, and you didn't have any reason to stop the person other than the mere possession of marijuana. But if they were committing some other offense like public intoxication or they also had an open container of alcohol or they were trespassing or something like that, uh, then, then yeah, you could go ahead and write the marijuana citation. And this doesn't require necessarily that you not have figured that out later. So if you've done a stop based on the fact that you can see the marijuana, you can smell the marijuana, you can tell it's marijuana, and uh, then you uh, then you, you investigate, you figure out they got marijuana, and you also figure out they're trespassing, there you could write the citation for the, for the marijuana because you've got another offense. But the next sentence becomes really important too. The next sentence says, no law enforcement officer may lawfully search or seize a person or a place or a thing solely based on the odor of marijuana. And no evidence discovered or obtained as a result of such an unlawful search or seizure 
shall be admissible in any trial, hearing, or other proceeding. The provisions of the section, again, don't apply to an airport, so uh, this doesn't, so airport officers, you get to search things based on the odor of marijuana, that's fine, or, you know, if you're doing a, a, if a dog, a dog can alert on something. Um, but otherwise, an officer cannot search or seize anything based on the odor of marijuana. Now, to start with, this is a huge deal, right, for your canines, because that means that if the dog is indicating the presence of the odor of marijuana, um, if the only basis that you have for the search is the dog, then you're going to have an issue because if it's if it's the odor, if it's the basis of the odor of marijuana and not the odor of something else. Now, what's your dog telling you? If it's marijuana, if it's cocaine, if it's something else, you know, you might have an argument there, but um, but but for now, if it's solely basis in the odor of marijuana, that's what you're articulating, uh, then the search is not permissible, it's not allowed, and the evidence is not admissible. And again, if it's you, if you're searching based on the marijuana, or you're stopping somebody based solely on the odor of marijuana, uh, you can't do that, you can't stop someone based on the odor, you can't search them based on the odor. And so you'd have to have something else. Now again, if you can see the marijuana in addition to the odor, well, now you have a basis for a stop. You have probable cause at that point. Um, if you, if the person is doing something else besides, uh, just emitting the odor of marijuana, for example, you're walking up and they suddenly take whatever they have in their hands and shove it into their pockets and you have the odor of marijuana, right? There you would be stopping the person, not simply on the odor, but also based upon their furtive movements or something like that. Uh, so there you'd have something else, but, but the mere odor, if that's all that you have, you couldn't seize the person, you couldn't stop the person, you couldn't search them. And if you are in the middle of doing a search of a vehicle for some other reason, for whatever reason, you're searching the vehicle, and you come upon a little box, and you sniff the box, and the box smells like marijuana, you can't search that box solely because it smells like marijuana. You have to have some other reason to search the box. Now, you're probably searching the car already because you have some other lawful basis to search the car. But, uh, and so you combine that with the odor. But if it's simply the odor that's causing you to open the box and there's nothing else, and you wouldn't have any lawful authority to open the box. Otherwise, the box stays closed. So that's the proposal. It's passed the Senate and it goes to the House. Um, a similar version has passed the House Courts of Justice Committee. So that probably will pass the House floor and then the House and the Senate will have to reconcile their bills. But it seems like, you know, at this point that a lot of people in the House and certainly the Senate, have want to make this law. Um, and I haven't heard any indication from the governor that he would veto that. So something like that is going to probably pass. I think it's a good bet. Something like that will probably pass. And so we'll talk about that on the podcast when it finally does pass, what that bill looks like. The next bill I want to talk about is Senate Bill... Um, oops, Senate Bill 5032. And this is a proposal from Senator Suravel. And it is the, uh, there's been some news about it already that reduces the offense of assault on a law enforcement officer from a felony to a misdemeanor. So originally this bill was proposed and it's a number of people had signed on to it. Senator Surveil, Senator Boisco, Senator Favola, Hashmi, Howell, Lucas, and McClellan, and Morrissey, and as well as a delegate, Delegate Corey. And they had all signed on to this bill. This particular bill, originally the way it was written, what it said was that a simple assault on a law enforcement officer, not an assault and battery, but a simple assault, which is uh, a th a, an attempted battery or a threat against an officer that appears to be an assault but isn't an assault. So 
Um, if I swing at an officer but I miss, that's an assault. If I swing at an officer and I hit, that's a battery. If I swing at an officer and I hold my fist over, all the way up to his face, make it make him feel like I'm, he's, I'm about to punch him, but then stop my fist just before I hit him, that's also an assault. It's not a miss. It's just me deliberately trying to make him think that he's about to get hit. And that's also an assault under Virginia law. This proposal uh, then uh, originally was written to reduce that from a felony to a misdemeanor. And there's a famous case where this happened where an individual uh, walked over a police officer and uh, was in a car and a police officer was doing a traffic stop and the guy pulled out his fingers and went bang. Uh, And the officer literally thought the guy had a gun. It was dark. He couldn't see what was in the guy's hands, but the guy pulled his finger, his hand out like he was drawing a gun and it and he and, and so it looked like a gun to the officer. The officer drew his gun um, and was able to apprehend in those you know whatever half second that he got his gun out that it was a guy's hand, but not a, not a real gun. But that was an assault, right? That was an attempt, obviously, to make an officer think he was about to get attacked. And that the court uh, court the Virginia courts found was an assault. So this would have eliminated that. This would have reduced that to a misdemeanor. But that uh, was changed in a amendment. Uh, the other thing that was changed was that the, that the assault and battery was going to have to require a visible bodily injury. And uh, we're going to talk in a second about the word bodily injury because that's a very specific, that is a very specific meaning in Virginia law, the concept of bodily injury. That's a very unique legal concept. Originally, the proposal required that there be a visible bodily injury. Well, at that point, if there's a visible bodily injury, in other words, a visible cut or a um, you know a wound, bleeding. I mean, that's now we're in malicious wounding or at least unlawful wounding territory under Virginia law, right? If I anybody in the street, if I walk over and I beat them to the point where you can see you know blood or a cut or you know that kind of thing, I mean, it, that's a malicious wounding. That's not a an, a battery anymore. So essentially, what it was saying was you're eliminating the whole concept of a battery and a law enforcement officer and turning them all into malicious woundings or misdemeanors. So anyway, the that proposal then Senator Suravel amended his proposal, and his proposal, his amended proposal, is what ultimately passes the Senate. Now the House has their own version, and that's winding its way through. It hasn't gone to the full House yet. So I'm going to talk about. I'm not going to talk about that yet because it's just sort of we have, we don't know what that's going to look like. But the Senate's version that has passed the Senate, and this will go to the House for consideration basically does two things. Number one is it eliminates the mandatory minimum for assault and battery on a police officer. So obviously right now the mandatory minimum is six months. Now there wouldn't be any mandatory minimum for assault and battery on police officers. So you could convict a person of felony assault and police officer and give them no time or give them a day or give them a $100 fine. The second thing that it does is it adds a new paragraph to this code section. And the new paragraph says that any person who's charged with committing an offense in violation of this code section, where the degree of culpability is slight, um, a jury, in this sentence doesn't really make sense. Actually, and I'm reading it now, and the sentence isn't grammatically correct. But anyway, uh, where the degree of culpability is slight, a jury or the court may find the accused not guilty of violating this code section, but instead guilty of simple assault or simple assault and battery in violation of uh, subsection A, the 18.257, and punishable as a class 1 misdemeanor. And it explains what cul- cul- where the degree of culpability is slight. So I, I, I skipped a phrase in order to understand what, what was happening. So it says that, um, what does it mean 
to say where the degree of culpability is slight. Well, it says where the degree of culpability is slight, comma, due to such person's diminished physical capacity, due to the person's diminished mental capacity, or due to the person's pervasive developmental disorder, or if there is no bodily injury. So, okay, so person's diminished physical capacity. Um, the person is, you know, a child, um, you know, or really small, or for some reason, uh, you know, they're, they're wheelchair bound. They have no ability to really cause you real harm. Person's diminished mental capacity, right? Obviously, we have a lot of people that we deal with who have diminished mental capacity. Um, if that person, their, if their culpability is slight due to the diminished mental, mental capacity, the court could reduce it to misdemeanor. Um, due to a pervasive developmental disorder. Well, what does that mean? You know, we could talk about that forever and psychologists and whatever. I'm sure there'll be a lot of expert witness coming in. Um, but again, this would be any assault and battery, right? So this would be, you know, any assault and battery on a police officer, not a malicious wounding, but a, any assault and battery on an officer, you know, punching a police officer, but I've got a pervasive developmental disorder. I've got some kind of learning disability and I punched a police officer. The court could reduce it if they found that my degree of culpability is slight due to my learning disability. Or the court could reduce it if there's no bodily injury. That's what this code section says. So if you spit on, for example, I think that's a classic, that's kind of what one of the things they're looking at. If you're spit on um, or if somebody just throws something at you but you're not injured, right? Um, a lot of people have, one of the things that people have done a lot of is like throwing frozen water bottles, um, which by the way would really, like, I mean, we're talking, that could be malicious wounding, obviously also, you know, you could, you know, break someone's jaw or put out someone's eye or whatever, Um but if you don't have an injury like that, you don't have any bodily injury, and I'll define bodily injury in a second, um, then a jury could reduce the offense to misdemeanor assault or misdemeanor assault and battery. So essentially, you have to have a situation where there's some kind of bodily injury or something else compelling that would make a jury say, um, I'm going to convict this person of a felony. They have the choice of reducing it to a misdemeanor, but they don't have to. And I've had assaults on a law enforcement officer before, I think, where I would have certainly put that in front of a jury, even though there wasn't bodily injury to the officer. I had a you know case where a guy kicked the officer, but the entire time he was, you know, using these vile racial slurs and saying awful, awful things about the police and this particular officer. And, um, you know, there was no bodily injury, but I would have absolutely said to the jury, you know, hey, if you think this guy's, you know, culpability is low or whatever, you think you should, you should get a misdemeanor, then by all means. But, you know, I wouldn't have any qualms about putting that case on. But, I mean, in a lot of cases, you're really going to have a bodily injury. So what's a bodily injury? Well, in in Virginia law, that has a very specific meaning, the concept of bodily injury. And honestly, bodily injury, if you can prove bodily injury, that is to say, in Virginia law, any bodily hurt whatsoever, uh, which is how the courts describe what a bodily uh, bodily injury is, then you really have also potentially a malicious wounding. Um, in interpreting the phrase bodily injury in the context of malicious wounding, courts have, have said basically bodily injury comprehends any bodily hurt whatsoever. 
Um, and it's basically given in the eyes of the court, it's everyday ordinary meaning. So there's no technical anatomical definition. And this is a, a word that also comes up in the hit and run statute, right? Where there's an injury in a hit and run situation. So to prove bodily injury, you don't have to have observable wounds, cuts, or breaking of the skin. You don't have to have broken bones or bruises. You don't need to have observable, um, you know, anything like that. Internal injuries, uh, can count as a bodily injury. Um, you know, soreness, pain, that kind of thing. Um, and again, in hit and run cases, it's the same thing. A lot of times you'll have, you know, we call it sometimes soft tissue injury, right? Um, that was a bodily hurt that would make a, uh, a hit and run a felony if you cause somebody injury like that. So that's the version that passed the Senate. I don't know if it'll be the law, but that's the version that passed the Senate. Okay. So the next one I want to talk about, this is a very complicated code section, and I could spend an hour and a half or two hours unpacking just the language here. Honestly, I could spend a whole day unpacking the language here. But I want to start out by saying this one is a little different, and I'm going to talk about um, House Bill 5013. This is a lot of patrons. Uh, patron is The person who wrote it is uh, Jeffrey Bourne, uh, but it's also Jones, Carr, uh, Aird, Ayala, Cole, uh, Jenkins, uh, Cole, uh, J.G. Cole, not the other Cole. Um, Jenkins, Corey, McQuinn, Plum, Price, Razul, and Delegate Scott. So that's a lot of delegates who are co-sponsoring this legislation. And Senator Lucas has also uh, co-sponsored it as well. And it has passed the House Courts of Justice Committee. It goes to the full House for a vote soon. The Senate had a version of this. And the Senate voted to pass it by with a letter to a group called the Boyd Graves Commission, which is a body of lawyers and judges who study legal issues for the General Assembly. And the Boyd and asked the Boyd's Gra Boyd Graves Commission to study this issue and basically give a report back to them. Uh, and so that's what the Senate did with this proposal, but the House has passed the proposal, which means that this proposal goes back to the Senate again for uh, a vote and the Senate could, you know, again, vote on this and decide to adopt it or they could, again, with this one, send it to the Boyd Gray's Commission and then nothing would happen. But the language of it is really interesting and you should, even if it doesn't pass this time, you definitely should expect this one to come back in the General Assembly in January. This code section does three things. Number one is it creates a civil action for deprivation of rights. Uh, by law enforcement officers. It also creates a duty on the part of an agency to control the conduct of a law enforcement officer, even if that person is off duty. Uh, and it also creates an, a duty for that, uh, or a new uh, code section, a new cause of action for negligent supervision for the employer. And then the last thing it does is it creates a new kind of liability to what it calls vulnerable victims. So, the civil action for deprivation of rights, uh, what it basically does is it says that a 1983 action, deprivation for the rights of the depra uh, deprivation of the rights, privileges, or immunities granted by the Constitution or its laws, uh, would exist in Virginia under Virginia law, just as federal law. And that's not a big, you know, that's the same, you know, federal law, state law. You can already sue in state court for 1983. So that's not a big change. But there is a big change in here in that, um, uh, that sovereign and any other statutory immunities or limitations on liability or damages shall not apply 
to claims brought into this section, and qualified immunity is not a defense to liability imposed by this section. So if you're curious about all this, go back and listen to my podcast. I did a whole podcast on qualified immunity and 1983 actions and so on. Check out that podcast. I'd go into that in depth. But here it says qualified immunity is not a defense, right? So if you're acting on the basis of a warrant and you believe that warrant is lawful, but the court says that warrant is, the court reads the warrant and they think that the warrant violates the uh, the, the person who's being searched Fourth Amendment rights, they think that the warrant was unlawfully issued. Now, you would be liable to that person, even though you would otherwise have a good faith defense in the Fourth Amendment case in the criminal case. You don't have a good faith defense here because they've eliminated it. They've said that the uh, good faith defense that's embodied in the qualified immunity defense is, is, is gone. You don't have that anymore, right? So, uh, or if you're serving a protective order and you think the protective order is valid, but in fact it's not, right? Again, you would normally have that defense, that good faith defense. You'd get it in a criminal case, but you wouldn't get it here because they're eliminating it. Um, it sets a call. A it says no action shall be commenced under this section more than two years after the most recent conduct prohibited by the section. So, in other words, it's a two-year time limit. It couldn't be for more than two years ago. Deprivation more than two years ago. Um, and uh, you can also still sue for other things. All right, the other thing that it does is it sets up employer liability uh, for a any police department, a locality, also for private police departments and for campus police departments to, and it requ- requires those agencies to, or gives those duties a duty of to exercise reasonable care to control a law enforcement officer, and this is its words, control law enforcement officer employees, um, when the officer is acting outside the scope of the officer's employment or the officer is uh, acting in a contract for services so as to prevent the officer from intentionally, intentionally harming third parties or conducting himself so as to create an unreasonable risk of bodily harm to such thir- third parties if the officer is on a premises under the control of the employer, so you're basically at the police department or someplace under the control of the police department, or you're at a premises or location because incidental, because you're doing some work for the employer, or you're using the chattel of the employer. So in other words, you're using your equipment. Now, what this means basically, for example, is if you're using your off-duty firearm in any way, or you're carrying your off-duty firearm in any way, then the employer is under a duty to exercise reasonable care to control you while you've got your off-duty firearm, uh, the one that belongs to the employer, not one that you would personally own, but if it's the chattel of the employer, in other words, the employer owns the gun, um, then they have a duty to uh, prevent you, to exercise reasonable care to prevent you from hurting anybody else, right? So I don't know how they would do that necessarily, but this sets up that duty. I mean, again, I'm sort of hard to think about how you do that, but um, but this sets up that duty. And um, so that's the second section. And then the next thing it does is it sets up a new cause of action for negligent supervision. An employer, a police department, owes a duty of reasonable care to third parties in their supervision and training of law enforcement officers. So this is a new cause of action. In Virginia, we don't have a cause of action for negligent supervision. We don't have a cause of action for negligent training, even for private private employers. I mean, nobody, no, you know, uh, Comcast or, you know, Walmart. I mean, they don't have a duty. There's no way you can sue Walmart for negligent supervision. That cause of action doesn't exist in Virginia. This invents it for 
law enforcement agencies. And it also invents a new tort for negligent training. That's a new tort that we don't have. There is a version of negligent training in 1983, but it is a very high, it's much higher standard to get to. Here, any negligence in the training uh, would open up the the uh, agency to liability. And interestingly here, they again eliminate sovereign immunity. Now what that means is essentially, you know, right now, if you want to sue the sovereign, you have to demonstrate, if you want to sue the state, you know, a firefighter, an ambulance, um, a school teacher, you have to demonstrate that they exercise, that they were they were guilty of some kind of gross negligence. Simple negligence is not enough, right? And that would overcome the sovereign, sovereign immunity. But here, you don't have to demonstrate gross negligence. You have to demonstrate simple negligence in training. So if you just didn't, if you were somehow negligent in your training of the officers um, and that led to somebody's injury, then that would open up your agency to liability. And then the last part is sort of the most, this, this part I'm going to have to walk through kind of carefully here. It's, it's really unusual. What it says is uh, there's liability, creates liability to vulnerable victims. And vulnerable victims are people who, by virtue of circumstances, including their physical or mental condition, uh, but not limited to that, are at a substantial disadvantage relevant to, relative to the law enforcement officer. And so a vulnerable victim includes individuals who are subject to a stop, detention, arrest, custodial interrogation, or imprisonment. So somebody you've got a traffic stop with or something. But it also includes people who are under a disability and people under disability can be um, infants, can be children, can be incapacitated people, can be incapacitated veterans. Um, if that veteran is, for example, like under a conservatorship or something like that, um, or somebody who can't take care of themselves, can't take care of their estate. Um, so we're talking about people who might have a guardian or might be mentally incom incompetent. So... But what's, what's, so what's notable about this is this liability is that the employer is liable. This creates this liability to an employer, and the employer is liable to the vulnerable victim for any tortious or criminal conduct of the law enforcement officer, regardless of whether it, part, it occurred in the scope and course of the employment contract, as long as the conduct caused the injury to the victim and it occurred sometime that the employer knew or should have known that the officer could be in contact with a vulnerable victim. Okay, so like a vulnerable victim is a child, right? A child is a vulnerable victim. So could you be in contact with a child if you were going to go out for the weekend and go to Bush Gardens? Sure. So if you drove to Bush Gardens and you're driving a car and you injure a child because you were negligent when you were driving in the parking lot of Bush Gardens, right? Of course, you would be liable for that. That's not a surprise. Everybody knows that. Um, but now your employer would be liable too because they knew you were going to Bush Gardens. You put in for leave and, they, and you said, I'm going to Bush Gardens. They knew you could be in contact with a child and that's it, right? That, that, that's what creates the liability. So there's no like, and also they didn't do anything to take care of you or they, it just says they, you, the employer shall be liable to the victim. So, you know, let's say, for example, you're married to somebody who's a veteran. They go to Iraq or Afghanistan, they're injured, um, and so your spouse comes back and they've got a traumatic brain injury, and so they have to have a conservatorship. So now they're in a, they're in a vulnerable situation, right? If you tortiously injure that spouse of yours or tortiously injure, you know, uh, you know and, the, and, the employee, and your agency knows that your 
you live with this person, uh, then they're liable to your spouse for your own tortious conduct. If you have a relative, if you have a friend that you, or roommate that you stay with, and your roommate is um, uh, at a substantial disadvantage to you, um, and, and by the way, it doesn't have to be because of their physical or mental condition, right? It just is an individual by virtue of circumstances is at a substantial disadvantage relative to you, right? So if you're 250 pounds and you're well-trained and you do MMA stuff and your roommate is 120 pounds and has you know COPD and doesn't breathe very well and had COVID and all this stuff, then if your agency knows you live with them and they're vulnerable, and then you guys get in a fight and you injure the person, if you did something that you shouldn't have done, if you did something tortious, um, then your agency just has to, is liable to that person, just period. They're liable to them. You shall be liable. It doesn't matter. The agency had no idea or couldn't control you, didn't do anything. It doesn't matter. They just by the virtue of this law, they are uh, liable. So uh, interesting uh, bill. And sovereign immunity is not a defense. So here again, there's no requirement that there be any negligence shown at all, really, on the part of the employer whatsoever. Um, uh, they could, you know, so it's just an interesting bill. Um, it passed the House Courts of Justice Committee, so the Courts of Justice Committee thought this was a good idea. It's going to go to the full House. Like I said, usually the full House um, uh, agrees with the committees and tends to pass these things. The Senate took this version and sent it to Boyd Graves. So we'll see what happens. Uh, that's the General Assembly session. Um and that's what I want to talk about today, three bills. So that's all from me for today. That's all from me. That's all from Big E. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. And like I always say, stay safe and don't get captured.